Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting. G'day, Karen. How are you? I am very good. I am COVID-free still, but I know it's it's coming for me. Yeah, how are you going? and what's your strategy with COVID when you get it? Well, well, no one in my household has got it yet, but I did say to my husband the other day that, look, if any one of us get it, we're just going to we're gonna try and all get it together so we have that seven days instead of... So kiss the husband, lick the kids? Lick the kids. Go lick each other. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Like just, just get it all together if we can. So it sounds like a great plan. I don't know how that would actually work. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, it's almost <laughs> a crime, actually. Um, you'll see Slido is there. This is what we do our case study with. So can you please get your the camera out on your mobile phone, connect the slider, actually answer the question. That'd be fun for us too. Just so you're ready when we do the case study later on. Interesting week. We're back into it pretty hard, aren't we? I think we're we're both looking a bit fatigued. We've both gone black. That tells us we're back in work, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. My best black T-shirt. <laughs> pretty interesting stuff happening this week. This is a week where we probably will be a little bit more angry than we would normally be. Oh, I'm going to be a little bit more angry. We've seen the farce of the religious discrimination legislation, which is... I might say, Karen, aptly name. It is the only Deliberate Discrimination Act we have ever in, ever put into legislation where it, it gives primacy to the, the religious attribute above all other attributes. And it was designed, maybe a bit of ideology, but it was designed to wedge labour on a marginal group of religious voters. The effect of the legislation when it went through is to allow people speaking in the spirit of their religious belief to do the Israel Falau and to offend and hurt other people who had other protected attributes. I mean, that's just so deeply offensive and stupid, but it was a political tool. And it reached the stage where Labor acquiesced to the stage where it was happy to let a most fragile and vulnerable group in the gender identity space, the trans group, to be deliberately hurt by private schools. I mean, this, fortunately, our community and many communities railed so strongly that the Morrison government balked at the last minute, and boy, am I pleased. This this is the would have been the first piece of discrimination legislation in 30 years to roll back protection from vulnerable people. So what we're, and I think this piece of legislation, Andrew, is probably at this point in time not as well understood more broadly in terms of what the impact is. It actually impacts all of us, okay, because what we're seeing is a piece of legislation that actually puts religion ahead of Safety in yeah, terms of people. That's right. Faith before fact. Yeah. You know, it's it's um, yeah. I, I want. I have some incredibly strong views, so I'll dodge it on. But I'm so pleased that it's been dumped. Good. You've seen Matt's video on LinkedIn, by the way. So we'll remind that about. He's wearing a different shirt. I know. He's I got. Get he's he's got two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Big Sorry, Soph. Don't send me messages like that. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to some substantive law at the moment. There is a really good thing that's in Parliament, so I'm not going to be all dogged today, mm-hmm. around labour hire laws and about harmonising them across Australia. Now, Federation has utterly failed in the last two years around COVID and we've seen state borders with differential closures, differential lockdowns. We've still got Western Australia deciding that they actually don't belong to Australia and they're just gradually slowly getting infected. That's bad luck for them, good luck for everybody else because the answer is our state and federal governments completely missed the opportunity to act like good people and say, this is the, the medicine we accept. Mm-hmm. 
apolitical, this is what we think we should do. We agree that we'll go lockstep together in this. We'll give the community a level of certainty. But for businesses like us that sit across various jurisdictions, mm. actually managing it's incredibly hard. Same thing happened in workers' compensation. I, I, I sit across and my staff sit across 60 pieces of workplace law when there should be five. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just shameful, isn't it? Imagine business turning up like we do every day and knowing in my jurisdictions, two different safety laws. In the jurisdictions I work in, there are three different discrimination-based laws, two state, one federal, and we're trying to actually provide certainty to our employees. And employees don't sit in Sydney or sit in Melbourne where they move between jurisdictions constantly. So this is a lovely thing to do and a very necessary thing to do, but it is just tragic that Australia cannot get its act together to say on all workplace law, Let's just have one single jurisdictional set of rules so people who come to Australia to work can actually work easily with Australia. All Australians know what their rights are. Mm -hmm. It doesn't become the preserve of lawyers to know what the law is. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the absurdity is you have higher protection in Victoria around forms of discrimination because it has things like discrimination against a person's appearance, which is a very proper thing. It doesn't exist in any other jurisdiction. Why? Because it's just too hard to sell. Yeah. You know, this is rubbish and... This is very good. What's happening with Adelaide? Yeah, so, it's great. It's good for business. It's it's well, it's good for employers. It's great for employees. It's good for our economy. It, it's, it's it's everything. Up, everything's good. Good everything. about it. And Julia's done a great chart for you, which Soph will send out, which shows you what are the current differences. So if you're wondering about it, you can actually do in a table. Right, I see what the differences are that exist now. So thanks, Julia, for that. Good work. Biggest thing that's happening. Biggest thing by a long way that's happening in employment law at the moment is the independent contract details, JAMSEC and personal consulting that went off to the High Court. And you've heard us talk about this. Our High Court is a more conservative black letter court. It, on the casual employment basis, said, look, if your employment contract reflects that you are a casual employee, you are a casual employee. Um, Ripped up years of jurisprudence around it when it did it, but made the world a much simpler place for employers and employees. So it was a good thing, I thought, okay? The independent contractors is a much more troubling case because it's been a place of really bad exploitation. And the traditional test was we don't care what's in the contract, we go and look at how you perform it. Now, that sounds like a really sensible way to do it, but what it means is nobody knows what they are until they've been performing it. Nobody has access to any form of justice until there's a sustainable case to be had and the people who are most vulnerable can never bring the case. Mm-hmm. So it, it failed in a whole number of ways. And what this High Court did is once again go back to Black Letter and said, look, the contract is the crucial document, but then it made this very big shift. It said rather than have a whole series of measuring what happens afterwards, what's called a multifactorial test, that is, look at different things. The principal thing around control is the major thing. If you're my employee, I control how you do the work. If you're my independent contractor, I get you to do the work, but you control how it's done. That's the, that's the fundamental difference. What the High Court said is if the independent contractor contract actually captures the factors that represent an independent contractor, then you are an independent contractor, unless that contract is a total sham. Mm. And then you go back to it. So you can't escape sham, okay, and the Fair Work Act wouldn't allow you to escape sham in any event. But this is really good for a whole lot of people because it's the opening the door to the gig economy. But what you can't do is have your cake and eat it too, okay? I want you to understand that you can't 
say, here's your contract for agreement, Karen, it's called the independent contractor, but then have terms which control how you exercise the job that you do like an employee because then you will be an employee. Now, like we did with casual contracts, I'm really happy for you just to send through questions or contracts and I'll send you off to Matt, who is our expert on this, and it's not going to cost you anything. Just send it through and Matt will tell you, no, you're going to struggle with this. This is what the problems are and you can make decisions from them. But this is a chance to reset your business around independent contractors. And at the moment, if you look at our business, we use them. And the reason we use it is we're in a highly disrupted workplace environment where there's huge ebbs and flows. They're no longer ebbs and flows. They're peaks and troughs. Mm -hmm. And we've got to manage the resource that we provide to you. So if you do this right, you have that protection. And for the people who are working in the growing gig economy, this is a chance to say, I can have you as an independent contractor and not have a raft of litigation coming my way later on costs, but I have to understand that I educate and train people to be able to do their work and control their own work. I don't control them. I can have rules as to when they go to work, when mm -hmm. they do the work, but what I can't do is tell them how to do the work. Okay? Yeah, I think it's great, Andrew, because what it allows, if we have the contractually, if we have that sorted, it allows us to focus our time and energy on the deliverables in terms of what is the work, what is it that needs to be done, service levels, KPIs. And we, who does it? And that's that's good for business. That's good that's for That's exactly the, what we need know, to do. This is what it should be about and I think it's great. Yeah, so I think this is a decision that understands that we have a disrupted workplace economy. It's going to be disrupted for a long time and this is a clear and easy and enforceable way through for everybody. So yeah. I commend it. Please send in your stuff and Matt will check it out for you. We've got a really interesting case of Karen and Westpac, which is a classic sexual misconduct case. We're doing it today not because it creates any new law, but it really shines a light on the complexity around managing misconduct, particularly sexual misconduct and bad behaviour when people are not directly in a workplace. And you and I spoke about doing it because there is no workplace. Mm. <laughs> yeah, workplace. And these cases will keep occurring and yeah. we'll keep bringing them up because they are so relevant. Yeah, and because the workplace is so refracted now. Mm. So this is not a This guy went to a function, grabbed a woman on the buttocks of the function. It was a work event that was occurred. It was, a, it was one that was, was arranged and was a deliberate event. Four hours later, like so many people in Melbourne, he found himself at the casino, probably not in the best state of affairs. It was abusive to a couple of women who he didn't actually work with. Going to the casino was not something that was condoned or controlled by the organisation. There was a significant period of time. He was sacked. He went to the Fair Work Commission and said, it's not appropriate. I shouldn't have been sacked. The Fair Work Commission said, look, the sexual misconduct is enough on its own and was it a work function, therefore you're gone. It's not a work function or something that we could say is conduct warranting termination or discipline what you did when you went to the casino because it wasn't anything that was condoned and there was such a separation in time and people. I don't think the latter part of that decision is the flashiest part of the decision, I might add, mm -hmm. and there is some case law that sits around it. But what it comes down to is this issue, which we'll deal with in the case study, of what is work and what is not work. Mm -hmm. And there's no problems. that the, that the law is really odd. It says... If you get injured as a result of somebody else's misconduct, then what is work is extended a long way. Mm -hmm. If you're the person who did the wrong thing, then work's a lot narrower definition because it's beneficial legislation designed to protect employees. So you have this difference. Injured workers' compensation will always look after the injured person. Sitting in the middle of that is this complexity that safety law doesn't like extending the workplace because it has a very definite de 
definition of what a workplace is. Yep. So all the other workplace laws extend all over the place, discrimination law, employment law, constantly stretching out. Mm. But safety, you really got to define its connection and it's never been litigated, okay? But now because of the way we work, it will be. That's the purpose of raising this case today is to have the discussion around is, well, what will be a workplace now in the future when we don't all work in a workplace and where we might meet together informally in a park, mm -hmm. which was never something that we did before, or what happens when I normally finish work but I continue to do work at home? Mm -hmm. Is that still a workplace? And a mate comes around and has a drink while I'm working. Is that a workplace? So interesting decision, not a particularly good decision, not a highly sophisticated piece of analysis in it, but brings you back to this thing of what is work, and we just wanted to agitate it. What is work? But from a managerial point of view, Andrew, like what does that mean for me as someone who is responsible for people? And even adding to that, are there bystander obligations? Yeah, and look, what we forget is where safety exists, there are bystander obligations. Every other legislation has no bystander obligation. Safety does. Safety in Victoria under Section 25 says you must exercise reasonable care to prevent an injury mm. to another person. So if I see someone being bad to you, I must intervene. Mm -hmm. I know nobody applies it that way. That's because they don't read the bloody legislation. So if safety law applies in a workplace, there are bystander obligations. And the what connects work to informal work occasions is the presence of a supervisor and leader either buying, directing or condoning behaviour that's going on. Okay. Well, you see that that could be that could look like a lot of different things a lot of different places, and there that is that that's the complexity. And can I just say we're right on the edge of the grey now, mm. and as we stay in this disrupted world, I'll try not to use that word one more time. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I had a late night. I stay on the edge of that disrupted world, it will get greyer and greyer and extended further and further. But look, let's jump on from that and go into yep. our discussion around unions. Tom, who works with us, has done some fantastic work of analysing unions. But what I want to talk a little bit about is some underlying truths which we keep forgetting about and which are dramatically affecting EA results and wage growth in the future. There's relatively low wage growth and expectation around wage growth. There's a, most enterprise agreements are going between around about 2 mm -hmm. up to about 2.75, big difference than four years ago. Last year, underlying inflation went at 3.5%, but the true inflation, consumer inflation, was at 45 That's groceries, petrol, building products. And that's not just supply chain issues, mm. but the problem with that type of growth is that it doesn't go down. So a lot of other underlying inflations can go up and down, but consumables don't go up and down. They stay up, mm -hmm. which means we're starting to get a gap between wage growth and, CP and true CPI, which means people are starting to hurt. But so is business. And business is hurting very dramatically because of supply chain issues, particularly larger businesses. So any manufacturer, miner, primary producer, builder, yeah, well, more than just Any, anyone, anyone who's got a supply chain in it. Well, we're talking about materials, but also people. Yeah, and you look at America, yeah. you know, material prices in construction went up over 25% last year in America. So I got Tom to have a look and say, what does all that mean for unions, seeing as three of our largest employers have sought to terminate enterprise agreements to get unions out of their workplace because the conditions that existed were no longer sustainable? So you see the point? We've got two different pressures. We've got wage pressure going up, but in fact wage what's been given in wages is low mm. and we've got inflation driving it 
And over here, we've got employers who now cannot have the inflexible workplaces that were created in union agreements or the cost associated with inflexibility saying no more, okay? History of unions really in the last 20 years, they've gone from 51% to 14%. And if you took out health, education and public service, it would be very, very low indeed, okay, because they're, they're the three major places where unionism is still over 25%. That's changed because for a whole series of reasons, part of it is changes in the way we do work. We see a massive difference in age. Young people just don't engage in unions. They feel that they are their own. They have their own story to tell. They engage directly. Mm -hmm. And they also see quite clearly the union have delivered their remit, delivered in 1990. Mm -hmm. And they're, what they're trying to do now is to do things which young people don't particularly want. The people who are holding on to unions are older, often frailer people, like mm. older nurses who are single-income families who are hurt and need protection and quite rightly use a union to protect them around it. And COVID taught us that directing what people are really seeking is direct engagement, trust and support with employers, and that is the death of unions, okay? So an interesting process to talk about, but what's really important of all of this, I guess, is I presented those facts and figures and I'll get Tom to publish his article with you which tells you the genesis of all this and why, because I want you to focus on unions are there because you fail, okay? And they're a necessary institution and I support them mm -hmm. because if you fail, someone must protect people and we've always been and always will be a people-first law firm and consulting firm, but also because it's the best way to have the most productive, healthy workplace, mm -hmm. which is just common sense. So interesting state of play. Let's just turn over to your discussion around what it means to you and how it actually plays out in real life. Thank you. All right. So with that, I will say that, look, Andrew, having come from the union movement myself and unions organise, how they work, how unions work is that we organise around issues, all right? So local issues in terms of the site, uh, the site itself, in terms of the membership base, and certainly there are more broader issues uh, around advocacy that gets done too. What we've had over recent years is that there's a lot going on and in terms of the unions have not been able to respond to those issues and provide the level of support and engagement that's needed to be able to carry on and grow and be influential and important. So what that creates, it creates an opportunity for employers to engage with people properly, okay, because I've always said that whoever engages better wins. Yeah. Right. So these are a couple of areas here on today's slide around what you can look at to create positive employee engagement. We're living in a world of uncertainty at the moment. So what we how do we, how you correct that is by creating certainty. You create certainty by having dialogue, an honest dialogue about what's going on, what you can do, where you're hurt, being there to actually listen to people and support people. That is absolutely key. Capability. So we're talking about making sure that with what we have and what we're going through, that people are clear about what they need to do, that as employees are clear about what they need to do, that they're important, that they're part of the picture and they're supported. And I'm talking about resourcing-wise, I'm talking from good management leadership as well. That is also important. That's something that you should already have in place. And if not, you know, invest in that and doing that right. Yeah. Recognition. And by recognition, we're talking about rewarding performance, loyalty and, and growth in a meaningful way. So people how much are we doing? At the moment, we've got three or four businesses where we're actually creating reward systems in traditionally non-reward based to actually hold on to talent. Absolutely. And to build capability. 
So, you know, this is a thing which brings them together into multiple streams of delivery with a bigger bang at the end of it. It's good for employees. It's good for business. Yeah. Yep. So autonomy, giving that comes down to trust and confidence in terms of letting people, once they're clear and capable, letting them get on with it and do their work and feeling trusted just by their peers but also their managers and organisation. Connection, that's the relationship and care factor with team leaders, supervisors, managers, uh, feeling that sense of belonging. And lastly, and this is where it goes when all these things go, where there's an issue, access and action. The ability and the confidence to actually go to somebody within the organisation to raise a concern, a grievance, or it could be something positive, a suggestion, an improvement opportunity, be heard and do something about it. And if there's a problem, fix it. It's if interesting. You're, you're doing Can I just say, that, Margaret yeah. just raised the fact about union, let her know about the, the 450 levy for superannuation. And that's great. The union get out before our own organisations get out to actually explain how, how things affect people. And I think there's an example. Unions will always remain a really valid information base and supporter. But the answer for us is as employers, what should we be doing? Absolutely. And that's it. So, yeah, you get rolled up on certain things. I get very rolled up at dinner parties as well, Andrew. Not that we're having them lately, but <laughs> around the importance of unions. They play a role. But in terms of getting the most out of your people and keeping people happy and engaged and productive, which is what we're talking about, there's things that we can do. And that's me. Okay. Well, look, that's great. And I guess what we're trying to say is please take, rather than sit on the received wisdom of three or four years ago, which was the embattled argument that there's a fight between a third party and you, do what COVID taught you. Talk to people, connect, engage, respond to what their needs are, build their capabilities build their engagement with the team, make them feel important, and you succeed. And then unions only exist where you fail. Mm. All right, let's jump on to the case study, and I'll see if I can manage it a little bit better this week. It's been beautifully crafted for you, Karen. Oh, I just thanks, say, Off you go. You're so thoughtful and considerate, aren't you? Let's go. Okay, so today's case study. Personal integrity garments, pig, made PPE <laughs> clothes for the construction industry. Hmm. Meath was a store clerk at the pig warehouse. She was a shy girl from a very traditional Egyptian family. Nadine Strathmiger, the GM at pig, arranged a social night at a local bowling club to celebrate pig's multicultural family. Staff were encouraged to attend in national dress. Alcohol could be purchased at the club. Neath did not drink. Others did, some excessively. The event finished at 8pm as planned and the warehouse team stayed behind to clean up. They were not asked to, they just wanted to. Afterwards, they decided to meet at McDonald's for a burger and Nadine offered to pay. Neith didn't want to join them as her parents expected her home over an hour ago, but Carol, her best friend at work, had driven her to the event and was her lift home. Carol suggested they go, stay just for 10 minutes to have a burger before they drove home and Neith agreed. Oscar, another worker at the pig factory, was drunk. He was swearing and had some very bad things, had said some very bad things to people during the event at the club. Neith was always awkward around him because she had been taught good men are reserved, humble and respectful. And he was the antithesis of that. Antithesis. Oh, was, my God. I, I got it. You know, I knew it would work. <laughs> I got a couple more in there too. Okay, well, let's see. Oscar walked over to Neith and bumped Carol out of the way. He grabbed Neith in a big hug and tried to kiss her. She pushed him away and laughed, patted her buttocks and said, Bridget, bitch. Okay. Are we allowed even to say that? Okay, anyway. Well, you did. I didn't say it. Okay. Then drunkenly meandered off to order a burger. Neith cried and ran out of the store feeling violated. Carol eventually found her crying around the corner and returned to her home. 
Okay, so we're going to do the first question now. So make sure you've got your slider up and running. Was Pig liable for sexual harassment? And the key issue here is the vicarious liability. Is there something that they did that made them liable rather than just Oscar? Now, let's see how we go. Yeah, so the results are mostly yes. The reason they are liable is very, very simple, and they are liable. They didn't have a process that provided people with a safe working environment. The leader of the organisation was at the burger place when it occurred. Mm -hmm. They'd allowed excessive drinking, like in West Cape, West, the Westpac decision, which was heavily criticised. So they created the levels of risk and placed an individual worker at risk. So short answer is they are vicariously liable because they created the risk and condoned the breaches of the risk while they were occurring. Okay, let's go to the next question. Could Oscar's employment be legally terminated? Now, Oscar was the person who sexually harassed Neith. And the question here is, would he have defences if he was, could he say he had a right for un unfair dismissal? Could he say he had a right for adverse action? Is there anything he could raise to say you couldn't lawfully terminate me? So the results are mostly yes. We don't know his personal circumstances. So for the 7% of people who said, I'm not sure, which I think it is. Yes, we don't know what his personal circumstances and there's been cases like Keegan and Leighton where people who did these types of things kept their employment despite it. His argument would really be, well, look, there was a whole lot of drunk people behaving badly that night. You've condoned it. You can't punish what you permit. Therefore, mm -hmm. you can't terminate me. And had he have not done such an explicit piece of aggressive sexual harassment and spoken so badly that would be a legitimate argument he could run. And that's something I want you to all remember. Mm. If you condone bad behaviour, if you create the circumstance of risk, an offender will be treated different than an injured person. So if Neith went away on workers' compensation, she would succeed without difficulty. Yeah. If she brought a discrimination claim against Pig, she would succeed without doubt. But the termination of Oscar is much tougher where there's been a failure by the organisation to provide a safe workplace. But his behaviour was so significant well, there's a valid reason. Well, it's certainly a valid. It's just in mm -hmm. the sense that there's laws that sit around it. It's yeah. reasonable in the sense that his behaviour was extraordinary mm -hmm. and it's not harsh unless we don't know his personal That's circumstances right. yeah. in the sense that people would say this is a very reasonable thing to stop someone from doing it. But I think for the people who said no, you've got a really good point in that mm. point, okay? Let's go to the final question. No work was being done at McDonald's. It was not an authorised function and the event occurred 90 minutes after the approved function finished, could Pig be prosecuted under safety law for not providing a safe place of work? Ooh. So this is the definition of workplace, okay? Is clearly defined in the Occupational Health and Safety legislation throughout Australia. So what we're seeing is a bit of a split decision there, and that actually is probably a really healthy split. Mm. In the sense, I think that Nadine's presence probably would say, with a group of people who work together, condoning a group of people working together in a group, even though Oscar came in from the outside of that group, I think safety law would put its arms around and say to Nadine, as both an officer and the supervisor, two different obligations, you certainly had responsibilities to provide a safe place of work and you failed to do it. Yeah. I think the likelihood of prosecution is incredibly small, but that's partly because regulators haven't got here yet. Mm -hmm. Okay? Will they get here? I think they will like they're getting there with bullying, and we're starting to see the first prosecutions around bullying, now that we've got this different world about what is a workplace, 
I think we'll start seeing more prosecutions in informal workplaces or extensions from workplace. The purpose of me doing it today is to highlight to you there was a supervisor there. You never take off your supervisor hat. Now, look, we're running a little bit late, so thank you very much for that. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks so much for coming along. Thanks for coming along, Karen. Yeah, yeah. Remember, kiss and lick your kids if you get COVID. <laughs> Do it in one go. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. See you later. Lovely to see you. Karen Murphy, too. Lovely to see you back. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, everyone.